Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. That's right. Uh, this is Mind Space, and I'm Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Evan Kopp. How are you? Good, Jeff. How are you today? I'm doing really well. You know, we've had some great shows l- lately, haven't we? I guess I don't know if I told you that. I wanted to tell you what, uh, how much fun it's been lately, and the conversations are so great. And one of the things that we've been doing, it wasn't really a um, an initiative I had in mind, but we've ended up talking to a lot of journalists lately, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, we talked to Ethan, uh, you know, who's working at NBC and was New York Daily News for many years. Uh, and uh, we talked to Michael Giltz, you know. Uh, and this week we have another journalist. Um, I'm talking to a lot of former colleagues because they are in the middle of what, you know, covering stuff. So they know a lot of stuff that's going on and they're pals and it's fun to talk to them. And I have a few more coming up uh, in mind. And today's is a, uh, a guy that worked at the LA Times. Uh, with me and I worked with him, you know, over a decade uh, in the calendar section. And, and it, Chris Lee had come from the world of magazines and um, I had always been a newspaper guy, you know, so my experience had been, I, I was doing entertainment reporting starting in like 1999. I became the music writer for the LA Times, uh, writing like major features and profiles and, um, and news stories about musicians. But before that, I had been on the Metro side covering crime and courts and politics. And one of the reasons they brought me over, actually, in addition to I sought the job out because I thought I could bring something different to it uh, energy-wise, but they, um, I knew how to cover a court case. And that was at the time Tupac and Biggie, you know, or you had guys like DMX and you had people that, uh, you know, Suge Knight, people facing criminal cases uh, and in criminal circumstances. So it was the time when the LA Times, which covers the music industry, as the hometown business um, needed somebody who could write about people that were rapping and people that were getting rap sheets, you know, like uh, it could, could handle both. So I was kind of a, a utility knife uh, on that front. And um, Chris Lee came over from new magazines with a very different uh, background, more feature driven and more uh, personality profile driven. And, uh, but we immediately, uh, uh, respected each other's work and really enjoyed each other's company. And, and uh, we became the Starsky and Hutch of our newsroom for a while, um, doing a lot of features and things together and a lot of fun adventures and going out to Coachella together and um, covering award shows together and, uh, you know, dealing with crises, like when you have to do a last minute story, an obituary or something like that, working on spot news and things like that together. Um, he is, uh, I thought of him yesterday and today because of a story that he, uh, published about a group of fans that had sort of a crazy adventure back in the 1980s 
when they won a contest and found themselves having a just a ridiculous, over-the-top, uh, debaucherous, uh, historically deranged weekend with Van Halen, the, the, the band that makes the music that is the best music to move furniture to. That's how, like, that's how Sammy Hagar described Van Halen's music to me once. I said, what, how would you describe that, that Van Halen appeal? And he said, it's, if you got to move furniture, it's the best music to listen to. Like, it's just, you get your back into it. And I just thought that was the best, the best description. Um, you know, the, it reminds me of ACDC description, this one I wrote, but I said that ACDC is heavy metal that's curiously e easy to strip to. Um, between the two there, you get a real sense of like what my music work was like at the LA Times. But Chris Lee uh, had a front uh, row seat to that work and I had a front row seat to his work. So it's going to be awfully nice to have him here on the show today. And uh, we're going to talk about that Van Halen story, which I'm glad I wasn't on that trip, Evan. I probably wouldn't be here if I had been on that weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me and some of the younger listeners, I kind of want to get a little bit of backstory to that because that's a little bit before my time and probably a couple of other listeners. Um, sure. And so basically what happened was MTV ran a contest that was like on one of Van Halen's last tours. Wasn't it one of their last tours? The last with David Lee Roth. The last with David Lee Roth. Who is a, gonna... a, a sex panther, martial arts, uh, heavy metal, uh, vainglorious fiend yeah we're gonna put you guys on this tour with them for a weekend or how long do you know i don't yeah something like that uh you know i, I remember the moments of the story but i'm not sure how how long the exact i think it was just a weekend that's right and it was pretty vague about uh what would happen but there were guarantees made both spoken and unspoken <laughs> yeah legality way like for legality reasons they probably wanted to keep it vague I, I guarantee you that there, uh, everything that happened in this weekend and all the rest reports and, and litigation that it spawned or didn't spawn um, uh, is a case study that they use over at William Morris explaining to people why they don't let their clients do shit like this. Like, yeah, so. <laughs> like this is why you don't, this is what you don't do is like uh, introduce uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll to your fans uh, up close and personal and record it or, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, sanction it <laughs> this was and it was kind of the beginning of mtv too correct so they're kind of like this big up and coming yeah they were pretty network. big by that they were established by that point you know because gotcha. this would be like 1984 so they they just had exploded on the scene uh but they've been around by that point because you know michael jackson's thriller came out uh, okay. september 82 so that that kind of there was the everything before that and everything after you know it yeah, was a great right in the wave it was a great decade, man. I, you know, I, I was 10 in 1980 and turned 20 in 1990. And, you know, the, uh, you can make fun of the 80s for what they represent culturally. But if you really look at the pop culture, I mean, some of the movies are just extraordinary movies that, you know, just define popcorn greatness and a lot of big albums, the biggest albums of all time in many cases and, and TV. And uh, there's so much going on, you know, and I, I was growing up in Miami um, and so like, you know, Miami Vice came on and Dan Marino came to town and the hurricanes got good and it was like all at the same time. And, um, you know, I remember going to see big concerts at the Orange Bowl where the Dolphins play, but going to see, and Joe Robbie later, but seeing like the police on Synchronicity Tour and seeing Springsteen on Born USA and 
um, in, in things like Genesis and some other ones. And these are just these stadium sized moments and you don't see stadium shows now anymore. You know, like you, you really don't, or you might see a baseball stadium, but you don't see like a football stadium show rarely. Um, it, there was, it was a transcendent time. Um, but those shoulder pads were awful silly. Yeah, you don't see much of those anymore. You know, the shoulder pads kind of ruin the whole thing. Like it just takes away all the credibility. So it's just like, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all these good things on one side and the shoulder pads on the other side and they balance yeah. out. Yeah, it's like the 70s with Nixon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of wash those away. Um, so, uh, but that's but pretty anyway, cool. Anyway, yeah. I, I, I digress, but um, I'm looking forward to getting Chris Lee uh, on the phone and talking to him. So let's see what he's up to. Yep, let's get to the interview. Well, welcome to the show, uh, Chris Lee. Chris Lee, the uh, senior writer at New York Magazine and at its culture website, Vulture, and a very good friend, a very dear friend of mine. How are you, Chris Lee? Jeff, it is wonderful to be here. We go back a long ways to our LA Times days, so I couldn't be happier than to be on your podcast today. Well, thank you, and it's great to have you here. And the main reason that you're here today is because I love me some rock and roll, and I love rock and roll stories and i love rock and roll excess these are some of the best things that are in the world especially if you're a journalist working in los angeles at any time in the past century or so um and chris you just had a, a great story um that uh, it's getting a lot of mileage i think on vulture about uh, some guys that had an adventure with none none other than van halen and back in the day right yeah exactly um i came across these two guys uh one of them won a contest that was thrown by MTV in 1984 called Lost Weekend with Van Halen. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, in light of Eddie's passing, uh, I tracked the guys down who went on this epic two-day bender with the band and had all these adventures that would basically be inconceivable in today's, you know, ultra, um, ultra restrictive, um, you know, ultra um, lawsuit happy times um, they, they managed to rock out with the band in, you know, in a way that involves sex, drugs, and rock and roll in a way that would have been inconceivable today. Yeah, exactly. Especially with social media, especially with uh, just, the, just all the moral implications that, that are brought to the fore by that kind of uh, weekend. What, what, uh, what is your favorite part or what would you consider the most scandalous part of that weekend? <laughs> well, I mean, let me unpack for, for your listeners what, you know, what happened. So, um, you know, MTV held, held this contest and there, there was a very famous uh, commercial that Van Halen's frontman, David Lee Roth, he's pictured amid this thrashed hotel room surrounded by a couple of models. And he says, uh, you know, if you win this contest, you'll have no idea where you are. You'll have no idea where you're going and probably no memory of it after you go. And, um, you know, that proved to be entirely true. They, they flew these contest winners out to Detroit um, and uh, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. There's a, there's a story of the winner doing cocaine off of David Lee Roth's pinky. Uh, there's, a, there's an interlude with a groupie in a shower and a bucket of potato salad. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's all kinds, there's, there's little people dressed in karate geese. I mm -hmm. mean, yeah, there's really everything that you, you kind of want from rock and roll debauchery in this story. You gotta love some Van Halen, you know? Um, <laughs> the great Southern California band and, uh, you know, we, of course, uh, as you said, this is a the story was precipitated by unfortunately the passing of a true rock and roll legend, uh, the the master of the percussive 
guitar solo in heavy metal in heavy metal in general uh eddie van halen uh, that was a rough loss you know i mean we've had some rough losses in music in recent years and ones that have really thrown me for a loop you know david bowie and prince uh leonard cohen uh and and eddie in a different way um really struck me because I, I i guess it was so unexpected although he he had so many health issues um you know with his uh i mean he had a good portion of his tongue removed uh during cancer treatments in recent years and really struggled with cigarette smoking uh in his lifetime uh were you a van halen fan growing up chris yeah i was an enormous van halen fan growing up and i mean i <clears throat> i suppose by even admitting this it sort of dates me <laughs> you know in 1984 when when the the commercials for this start for this contest started I was 13 years old and, you know, I just thought I want to party like those guys. And you know, when I, a couple of years later, I was drinking Jack Daniels in homage to, to, to the group. Nice. Um, you know, I, I, in, you know, on my, um, on my eighth grade notebook, I, um, you know, I, I made it red and put tape on it to replicate Eddie's famous Frankenstrat guitar. Ooh, nice. you know, it was all sort of like, you know, taped together. And th this band meant a lot to me. So, you know, doing the story, it was a real trip down memory lane for everything that I, you know, got into rock and roll uh, for. Everything I sort of loved about the excess, the enormous sound, the enormous personalities. And, you know, Eddie, Eddie's loss, Eddie's passing is a huge tragedy. I mean, it, it seems like really the end of an era, just not for me and you, but, you know, I think for a lot of people, he, he was by many accounts just a, a real gentleman um, and a, a really nice guy. Uh, yeah. In addition to being, you know, one of the foremost six-string heroes in rock history. Absolutely, very well said. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Um, and I got a chance to see them in concert. Uh, well, with, without Dave, when I when I saw them in concert for the first time back in uh, ooh '86, maybe I think whenever. So, the, so you saw Van Hagar. Yeah, Van Hagar, and it was uh, the best of both worlds, and. Um, uh, it was a great show. Uh, I saw it down at the Hollywood Sportatorium in Hollywood, Florida. Wow. Uh, I remember uh, distinctly that it was, I thought, the loudest concert I'd ever seen at that point, which was a big deal because I had seen some, you know, I'd seen ACDC and stuff. Uh, and um, it was a great show. And Eddie was magnificent, you know, and, and it was so, we'd never seen a band change lead singers and stay on top before like that. Um, and, and there's no, no, comparison I can think of. Um, and then I, I got to spend some time with the guys in later years uh, as a journalist, which was a real thrill. Um, I actually went on tour with Sam when Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth did that ill-fated team-up tour, you know, which was the Sam and Dave show. And they, they uh, basically, they, you know, they loathe each other. They, they do not like each other. They, they could not be more different. Um, and uh, they consider Eddie, uh, they had considered Eddie sort of like the, the, the ex-wife that kept switching back and forth between ex-husbands, I think, um, by the, you know. Yeah, the, I mean, totally pulling his marriage there. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I remember on that, on that uh, uh, assignment, I was in St. Louis and meeting David Lee Roth for the first time, and he had postponed the interview maybe five times during the day and basically what he was doing was he was trying to get the interview to take place exactly when Hagar would be on stage. <laughs> and so he was gonna basically make sure that Hagar's performance was not in my story. And I was like, dude, you're killing me right now, like doing this, you know? 
um, I, and I just put my foot down and stuff. Uh, and finally got the interview uh, at a different time. And I went in and the first thing I noticed is that uh, I was in his trailer and uh, there were there was a tray with like three lines of Coke and there was two freshly rolled joints just sitting there between the two of us. It never mentioned, never acknowledged, never, never pointed to, um, but it was made clear that uh, if I wanted to, I could, I could do a couple lines with DLR. And I, I, I tell you, as a kid <laughs> growing incredible. up from South Florida, <laughs> like I was like, no, you know what? I'll lose my job. So I did not, <laughs> I resisted. And also quite honestly, I, I, I would never do that with a source. Uh, but even more than that, I was pretty, I was kind of pissed at him. You know, I, I didn't appreciate the, the way he was doing stuff that day. Uh, do you know how I described him in the story though? You'll like this. Um, Let's hear it said, um, uh, the two of these guys are now two surly castaways, career castaways, clinging to wreckage, waiting for the good ship Van Halen to come back and pick one of them up. Wow, slow <laughs> clap to that. <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. But I mean, you know, I think, you know, your story of like being tempted by DLR, that, that's why a lot of people even get into rock journalism. So yeah. that, that is a highlight and that, all, that smokes, uh, no pun intended, Snoop Dogg offering me to get Hydra in our interview, which I similarly uh, just said no to. But I, I don't know if your readers are aware just how partisan it was. I mean, if you were a Van Halen oh. fan, you really were either Team Dave or Team Sammy, and really there was almost no overlap. Um, and I was I was staunchly Team Dave. Yeah. But then, you know, as, as I've aged, I've sort of have grown to love, you know, Van Hagar, and it, but it's been until now. I'm coming. I'm coming out of the closet with this. It's my my guilty pleasure that I actually enjoy Van Halen with when, when, with Sammy on the vocals. So that <laughs> sounds like a cool story you had, though. Well, um, you know the thing is, is interviewing Sam makes you. Yeah, he's a very lovable guy. Like I, I, I found myself that after I spent some time with him on that, and then a, a couple other times, I wrote about Van Halen uh, subsequently. Um, he is he was one of the nicest people in all of rock and roll and and afterwards i remember like whenever his songs would come on the radio i couldn't turn them off even if i didn't want to listen to it like i, I had friends like why are we listening to i can't try 55 and i go it's sammy i can't i can't turn it off I, you know uh i've had some bands interview uh um interview the lead singer or a member and then feel so sour that i had a hard time enjoying their music after that uh, his yeah. was the exact opposite that um, he was such a sweet guy that uh, I found myself compelled to always leave his stuff on the radio no matter what. Um, wh have you ever had an experience like that one way or the other where uh, during all your years as an entertainment journalist that you've interviewed someone and then you found it hard to sing along with them after that? I, I have. <clears throat> and actually both times it involved rappers. Mm. Um, I was an enormous Beastie Boys fan. Oh, wow. And when I, when I interviewed MCA from the Beastie Boys, who had uh, directed a film called um, Awesome, I Fucking Shot That, which is a sort of crowdsourced <laughs> film, um, he was really just getting into Tibetan Buddhism, which I'm 100% in support of. But everything, it was almost like the joie de vivre that I had, you know, originally gravitated towards him and the band for had been sapped from him. And he just gave this incredibly boring, sanctimonious interview. And um, I just couldn't believe that I had, you know, idolized this guy as a teenager so much. So I really, it, it colored how I listened to the music from there. 
And then uh, after that, I interviewed Ice Cube. Yeah. And I guess he was having a bad day, but it was just a terrible <laughs> interview. And I can't tell you how much I loved NWA uh, growing up. So it was just a major disappointment. But then, you know, I interviewed Ice Cube probably three other times after that, and he was really cool and personable and friendly. So, oh. so he made up for that. Yeah. But, but before, I, before we leave the, the topic of Diamond Dave, I wanted to tell you about the, the, the great whale that got away. And I mean, I'm, I'm infinitely jealous that you got to interview Dave. But the, I, I've been trying to, for the past two years, line up an interview with him. He's very reclusive these days. He, he only comes out to sort of sporadically promote something very weird. Like he had a line of skincare products that you put on tattoos. Because I think unbeknownst to most people, Dave has like huge number of tattoos. Like he, yeah. he's tattooed with one of those traditional Japanese, like full body, almost kimono tattoos and had released um, a line of skincare products. And that, that's what, that's the last thing he did any promotions for. But uh -huh. I've been trying to talk to him about the time in his life when he was a paramedic, uh -huh. he was out of Van Halen and he decided that he was going to sort of pick up a sideline and became an EMT and was working in New York. Yeah. And so he was like working in the outer boroughs, like defibrillating people and bringing, you know, junkies back from the great beyond and then getting on a private jet and like rocking Budokan two <laughs> nights later. So I, I'm dying to talk to him about this, but he keeps saying no to my interview. Requests. He's a tough interview because you get, he, he has such a, a constant patter of turbo jive. Like he, he just, you know he's he's constantly uh riffing on this on these pop culture references and you know i i remember talking to him once and like within the span of like three minutes he he mentioned like neil young sea anemones uh kojak uh buster keaton and but none of it it was almost like a gymnastics routine like it was just a it was hard to get to the real guy underneath but uh he told me a joke once it was the funniest joke i've ever had someone tell me during an interview or at least the most useful for the story. He says, how many um, rock and roll lead singers does it take to screw in a light bulb? He says, just one. They stand there and wait for the world to revolve around them. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I was of like, course. damn, DLR. He sent me a <laughs> bottle of champagne once too, because in uh, that Sammy story, that first one I mentioned, even though I described him in the story as a, uh, I compared him to um, a bartender at a Hollywood strip club who have who has read half of a lot of books. She's <laughs> um, pretty mean, right? And he sent me a bottle of champagne. I was I was shocked, and I was like, "Man, he's he's trying to make a point that he is really above what you know any sort of criticism." But then I read the card, and it was only he hadn't read the whole story. I don't think. Uh, but at the beginning of the story, I, <laughs> I called him a sex panther, and that's what he was saying thank you for. Wow. Did Sammy send you a bottle of Cabo Wabo tequila, however? You know what? Uh, Sammy gave me a ride on his airplane uh, that night, unscheduled. Um, it was a weird adventure because I was in St. Louis writing about these guys, right? And I spent almost all day with Sammy. We played ping pong and hung out with his tequila girls because they come up on stage and everything. Um, and I love the guy, like I said. And while I was hanging with him during a lull, waiting for the uh, Dave interview, I got a phone call from um, Dean Baquet, um, who uh, The editor of the LA Times at that time, of course. Exactly. Uh, you know, um, the fearless leader of our newsroom um, during the glory days. And, and 
um, he was saying that uh, R. Kelly had been arrested um, in Chicago for um, child pornography charges stemming from the notorious videos, uh, those early videos, as they first made their way into, you know, the public arena. And uh, I was like, holy cow. He's like, I'd like you to go there right away. And I said, well, I'm in St. Louis. I'll, 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 shuffle, I'll see what travel can do and get me over there. And um, sta Sammy is standing right next to me. He's like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I kind of told him what was happening. He's like, I'll take you. We'll fly there tonight. It's not a problem. I got a plane. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I flew there with Sammy and his band because they were, um, when they would tour, they would stay in one big city. Like they were staying at the Four Seasons in Chicago and then um, keeping the, the families there. His, his kids were there with his wife. And then he would every day take his little plane to either St. Louis or to Kansas City or, you know, what have you. Um, so he's going that way anyway. But as we got well, on the plane. I'm, I'm, waiting, I'm, I'm waiting for you to tell me that, like, you know, that it was, became a buddy cop movie. And you and Sammy, <laughs> like, found R. Kelly and, and, and gave him uh, what for. <laughs> but sorry. Yeah. No, he, he brought some rock and roll justice to R. Kelly. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> no, you know, I'll tell you what happened, though. Is it, it's, a different, it's a different TV movie. It's a different episode of VH1 Behind the Music. Because you know what happened? We're in this little plane. And now you remember Sammy loves airplanes, right? He did that video when he, uh, for Van Hagar, that first one, uh, in Dreams. Remember, Dreams. it's just him in a fighter yep. plane. Yeah, the, um, I think it was that. I plane. think it's the Blue Angels, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah. so he's a big plane guy. And so I get on this tiny plane, right? Nice jet. Uh, and with him and his band, they all hold hands and start to do a prayer as outside the rain's falling and the thunder's going. And I realize, oh my God. I've gotten on a small plane in the Midwest with a rock star. What the fuck yeah. am I doing? Oh, you're you're dead. You're dead. <laughs> you know, like, like, <laughs> your odds of surviving that are like ridiculous. Yeah, forget it's, it. There's nothing scarier yeah. than the rock star doing a prayer. It is scary. Yeah, that's that that <laughs> makes my blood run cold just thinking about that. <laughs> so with these guys with the MTV contest, um, uh, what, tell us a little bit about what they're up to these days. I mean, they, they obviously survived that weekend and, uh, well, okay. So, I mean, um, you know, in the story, you know, I talk about, you know, they're, they're these sort of, um, somebody you know, that I interviewed for the story described them almost as like Richie Cunningham and Potsy from happy yeah. days, like just perfect small town, nobodies. And they go and par party with the rock stars, like so much that they're, you know, basically immobilized. And in the third act of the story, I reveal that Kurt, the contest winner, uh, had actually been suffering of a traumatic brain injury, which he didn't reveal to MTV when he accepted the, the, the grand prize of, of going on the last weekend with Van Halen. Right. What had happened to him is as a 20-year-old uh, in community college, he went to a frat party and had fallen from the, the seventh floor to the sixth floor of his dorm and landed on his head and had been taking, you know, anti-seizure medicine when he went off to party with Van Halen. And so partying with the band nearly made Kurt have a psychic snap with reality. And he says he doesn't remember what happened, which is totally in keeping with what David Lee Roth had promised about the contest <laughs> is that you're going to have no memory of it after you go. But, um, you know, the MTV executives made uh, Tom, his friend, step in and, you know, kind of make Kurt, you know, calm things down a little bit. He was, you know, destroying his hotel, destroying the backstage area. He wanted to keep on drinking 
you know, he was on some DLR cocaine and uh, he was basically going nuts. So um, for the last 30 years, Kurt has been clean and sober and has been in AA. So I don't know if the last weekend is actually what made him finally clean up his act, but, but uh, you know, basically, you know, going on tour with Van Halen and taking every controlled substance under the sun and having sex with groupies did, you know, did not help his psychiatric condition. Oh man. I think it's fair to say, you know, reading it, I was thinking, you know, I know he's sober, but I bet he still has the hangover. <laughs> he's the sweetest hangover he's been dining out on this story for you know since 1984 and they made a, a short film a, you know documentary called lost weekend that was accepted at the tribeca film festival and then played in competition there last year so you know he but he, he won a lot of cool points for doing it that's great that's great you got to consider you know van halen has got to be one of the great i was thinking that you know of if you think about southern california music by decade you know, they, the 70s belonged to the Eagles and Van Halen, you know, I mean, well, and Fleetwood Mac too, I guess, you know, but uh, they, they're they such a, a you know, a, a powerful signature sound in Southern California. Although if you look at the recordings, they, they're, they didn't, you know, their best work really was in a fairly condensed period of time, you know, like, uh, and then with such long lulls, such long lulls during uh, their career, it's uh, kind of frustrating in a way. Yeah, they, I mean, the, uh, they started as just a kind of bar band. They started rocking backyard keggers in their hometown of Pasadena, graduated to the Sunset Strip where they were a glorified cover band. But, you know, just that, that, that sense of fun, that sense of abandon, um, I agree that, you know, the Sunset Strip really did belong to Van Halen for a certain point, especially in the early to mid 80s. And, you know, they wrote the rock and roll playbook, the, the no brown M&Ms clause in their tour writer is just legendary. Yeah. And, you know, if, if the if the concert, you know, and David Lee Roth had a wonderful rationale for that, which, you know, people just thought, oh, this is, you know, rock and roll decadence, this is rock and roll entitlement. And, you know, but it really, there was actually a really good reason for it, which is that he, he said, that if the concert promoters didn't bother reading the fine print about what they needed in their dressing room, that meant that they weren't, weren't going to be attentive to what the band would need to perform as well as they could on stage. So the band would, you know, as a matter of course, respond by destroying the backstage area <laughs> if there were those, those brown M&Ms. But, you know, the, the, the Jack Daniels, the strippers, the, destroy, the destruction the, you know, town to town marauding. I mean, you know, they, they wrote the rock and roll playbook in so many ways. Yeah. It's, it's uh and you think about their influence. I mean, I mean, certainly Guns N' Roses, certainly Motley Crue, things like that. You, you never would have had any of those bands uh, look quite the way they looked or, or act quite the way they acted. If, if Van Halen hadn't brought their sort of signature debauchery to the, to the table in the seventies uh, out of uh, Hollywood high school, I think. Right. Uh, well, I remember, you know, watching the first big video for Def Leppard, yeah. and I'm forgetting that lead singer, but he attempts to do one of those David Lee Roth scissor kicks. Oh, no. And, <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't, I think I was like, you know, 12 years old, but I'm like, this guy is ripping off Diamond Dave. You can't do that. Yeah. But, you know, he didn't have intellectual trademark on on doing this, the, the off the stage scissor kick. So, so that's awesome. Ripped it off and I guess got away with it. That's great. The, um, and you think also, you know, what adds to the, the uh, uh, the legacy and, and sort of the aura of the band is, is there one of those brother bands, you know, like what is it, think, think about the bands with brothers, you know, the v brothers Van Halen, 
um, you, but you think of like all the bands with brothers are the bands that have the w most acrimonious, like just bitter. You think about the the Beach Boys, you think about Oasis, you think about, I mean, it's there's so many. Uh, like the kinks, like if, if you have brothers in the band, it's, it's usually not going to go well. Um, I don't know what that says. And also harmony groups, you know, not that Van Halen's a harmony group really, but they seem to be the, the, the harshest toward each other. You know, I'm not sure if that's because they're trying to sing so perfectly that everybody's loses their mind, but you know, like, I do want to say that the young brothers of ACDC are the notable exception to that rule. Oh yeah. But I, you know, I, I don't know that Alex and Eddie Van Halen, um, were at each other's throats in the way that say Noel and Liam Gallagher no, were. No, no, no. But yeah, just on on the note of the harmonies, actually, that was the biggest acrimony in the band. Is that um, you know Eddie and his falsetto and bassist Michael Anthony and his falsetto were just like a cornerstone, like this like beautiful angelic yeah. um, harmony section to to Dave's you know frontman preening and. Eddie hated Michael Anthony's guts and just would air him out in every single interview in this way that I still don't understand. It's I mean, weird. You know, so many people have told me that Eddie's a really nice guy, except to, if you're the lead singer of the band. But for some reason, he just hated Michael Anthony's guts. And I really never quite understood what that was all about. He seemed like such a lovable guy, you know, like, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, just his persona spinning around with his, his uh, Jack Daniels bass and everything. And, um, uh, you know, and Eddie, you know, uh, bounced him. He bounced Michael, you know, uh, and replaced him with Wolfgang uh, in more recent incarnations of the band. And and that was tough for longtime fans to see. Everybody loves Wolfie, Wolfgang and his son and, and respects his his musicianship. And, and I think we all can understand what a thrill it would be to perform with your son on stage. But at the same time, it seemed like you could add a guy to the band, not just kick out a founding member for no reason. No, uh, but that 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 Jack Daniels bass, I mean, that's a classic. <laughs> and you know, Wolfgang Van Halen, God bless him. I mean, he also has one of the best names in the history of time. Yeah, he but, does. But um, you know, you you can't really replace my, that that alchemy of Michael Anthony's falsetto harmonizing with Eddie on 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 those backing vocals. They're just so sweet. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And it, it was an unusual sound, just the same as Eddie's guitar. Um, Van Halen, we love you. I got to do I got to do tequila shots with Valerie Bertinelli and Sammy backstage at the Staples one wow. show. Wow! Oh, so Valerie was still in the mix. Okay, so just to bring it back to my story for one second, um, you know, Valerie Bertinelli was one of America's sweethearts at that time, and she shocked everybody by marrying this rock and roll bad boy, Eddie Van Halen. Last weekend with the, you know, the contest winners are backstage and they're sort of wandering around, you know, deer stuck in the headlights. Mm -hmm. And there's Valerie Bertinelli of one day at a time fame. And she's like, what do you guys want to drink? They're just conspicuously underage and she's hooking them up with alcohol. So it's like one of the many little sweet spots of like Love that it. weekend for those guys. And the show's called One Day at a Time, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and Mackenzie Phillips is on that show who, who certainly, you know, uh, talk about she liked to party yeah certainly she uh and and very familiar with the music industry and and the dark side of it as well too obviously but uh the van halen is uh is pretty amazing what do you uh do you think where do you think they eddie ranks in the the pantheon you know sort of guitarist i mean he's got to be right up there with with hendrix and you know yeah i mean you know um what eddie did 
you know, to move guitar playing forward, I don't think can be under, I don't think can be overstated. Um, You know, the, the way that he used, he drummed his fingers percussively, as you were pointing out at the, at the top of this podcast against the, the fretboard was just something nobody had ever done before. And, you know, by, by many accounts, while Dave was downstairs, you know, backstage, Dave and the rest of the band, you know, ravaging groupies and stuff, Eddie would be holed up with some Jack Daniels and mountains of cocaine, um, just, you know, taking guitar playing into the future. And it's hard to imagine somebody like Tom Morello, you know, doing mm. the guitar innovations that he made without what, what Eddie had done first. It was electrifying, it was incredibly technical, but it was muscular. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to say for my money, Eddie's top five, maybe even top three. Yeah, no, very well said. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I mean, he really did. He changed what uh, uh, the palette of a guitar. Uh, he expanded it and, uh, and, and redefined its role in the, you know, the sort of the sonic, you know, shape of rock and roll, you know, and, uh, you know, I, obviously a musical prodigy growing up he and his brother both uh alex um and you're right they 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 were never divided they were sort of a, always a unified front even when the band um got, uh you know all the acrimony with dlr you know um dave getting in the huff if i remember right it was the the solo in the michael jackson song um that yeah, was a big he's very Right, which was and uh, and and Dave insisting that Helmut Newton shoot photographs of the band for Van Halen too. I think that they only ran an entire poster size picture of David Lee Roth <laughs> instead. But I, but I also want to give um, a shout out to Eddie. Uh, you know, in this in this era of multiculturalism, he you know like was a sort of Trojan horse of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know he's he is half Asian, mm. half uh, Indonesian. I think his mom's uh, Indonesian Dutch, and so he and Alex, you know, were among the lone Asian rock stars to really light it up on the, the Sunset Strip. So absolutely, and that's part of his legacy that uh, I, we should give a lot more attention to. Uh, and it's it's interesting that it doesn't get much attention, you know. Yeah, secret Asian man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, as uh, we finish up here, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on today, but what, uh, what would you say is a couple of your favorite Van Halen songs? Uh, you know, I think if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, you know, it's like maybe some obvious things like Hot for Teacher mm-hmm. or something like that. But t- two things. Everybody wants some. There's oh, yeah. two exclamation points. I like that there's a second exclamation point. It's not <laughs> one, it's not three. Um, there's not a lot of incredibly primal van halen song it's like everything that i like about this sort of uncaged quality that van halen had and um you know with respect to eddie off of um the the album diver down which i think came out in 1982 yeah um there's a song called cathedral that i was under the impression was synthesizer but it's eddie just wailing on the guitar with all these effects in in this just beautiful beautiful way it's like a a five minute guitar solo no drums no anything else and it, it's just a, a beautiful, I, I hesitate to use it, I'm gonna use the word soundscape that Eddie created on, on this, this record of odds and ends. It was, you know, despite how higgledy-piggledy it was, a huge multi-platinum hit. So I'm gonna go with those two. How, how about you, Jeff? What, nice. what, are, what, are two, what are two Van Halen songs that, what's getting some play in, your, in the Jeff Boucher mobile these days? <laughs> let's see, yeah. I, you know, I, I was always a big fan of Unchained. You know, I think it's mm-hmm. just, a, just a strong, powerful song 
Um, and then, you know, there's a couple that, you know, there's a couple off of, uh, of 1984 that I like as well. Um, there's one, oh, I'm trying to think of what, it's not Panama. I love Panama. I think Panama is great. So it's so much fun. Masterpiece. And it's, it's got like the double entendre, you know, like I reach down between my legs and ease the seat back and like, you get the feeling he's not talking about a car seat, you know, like, <laughs> um, just like, it took me years to figure out diver down was a sexual reference. I'm like, Oh yeah, of course. You know, like it's like when Love I was scuba, when I was 12, you know? Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, those, I, I'll, I'll go with Panama and Unchained just cause they're such big, strong songs. Uh, strong choices. And, uh, I got to take my son to see Van Halen, uh, with Dave when, uh, they, they did a friends and family show at, uh, the uh, forum and a cool in the gang opened which was what? just awesome <laughs> like it was so so many like amazingly unexpected combinations of flavors right there um and uh and my son that's ben, a your chocolates in my peanut butter moment that's that's <laughs> a, that could be wonderful yeah. it's your chocolates <laughs> in my not brown m&ms uh <laughs> uh it's uh it was amazing uh and dave was in fine fine form and just seeing those guys together it kind of uh, it's it was a revitalizing feeling for me as a guy in my 40s at that point to see that, and uh, just as uh, you know, seeing Eddie's passing was kind of a one of those chilling moments in our ongoing march toward mortality. You know, like uh, it, it oddly though the the one that haunts me the most is when the Violent Femmes album hit its 30th anniversary. I knew oh, that no. I was old. I was like, God, it's still I still think of that as kind of new. <laughs> wow thanks for ruining my day but i do have to ask you before you leave the subject of that concert sure um i know that there, there's like a big portion of every van halen concert that's given over to eddie playing eruption and th you know this can last 10 12 minutes and I, I you know i think over time dave got kind of jealous and he would lapse into this um conversational weird thing where he'd show a video of rescue dogs yeah so i have to know did, did he talk about his dogs and his rescue dogs in, in that that friends and family concert that you attended you know i don't remember if he talked about that friends and family concert but i i've talked to him about that um you know i i, I went to his house a few years back um and did a sit down with just the two of us uh that was just i could send you this piece it was the, it was it was that was the sea anemone one where he, I remember he was talking about the uh, sea anemones and what they mean um, to him. Um, and, but I remember he was talking about his rescue, uh, the rescue dogs quite a bit. Um, and, you know, he's always got these interesting pursuits and, and stuff. And he lives in the same house in Pasadena that he bought back in 78. Um, right. You know, he, used, he bought this big, big house there and he's been part of the local landscape. Uh, and, you know, he's from the Midwest and from a family of Jewish doctors. Uh, Mm -hmm. Um, and he, uh, has so many pursuits, so many different things. You mentioned some of his different entrepreneurial pursuits, but, you know, and also his martial arts, I, you know, I've spent hours talking to him about his martial arts and, um, uh, it's always something with Dave, but it's, it's, it's hard to get to know the guy inside, you know, like, cause there's so many things. It's like the he's uh he's like kind of like a juggler and he, you know you never get to see the guy that's behind the, the the you know all the flying objects well it sounds like you got as close as anybody has we should go talk to him together man i can i can i'll give him a call i didn't know you were looking for him i can maybe i can help you out 
Hey, we're making history on this podcast. <laughs> well, Chris Lee, uh, uh, you should read everything that Chris Lee writes. And uh, latest on that long list of things is this story about Van Halen and their lost weekend with some fans back in the day. You can find that on Vulture, which is the culture website of New York Magazine, and he's, where he's senior writer. Uh, Chris Lee, thanks for coming by. Jeff, a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me on. All right, man. Happy Thanksgiving. To you too. It was very cool to see you and Chris talk. Um, just as you had promised, that was a pretty crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm such a fan of Chris's work and, and uh, uh, just the way that he does things. And, and I really enjoy his writing because our styles are actually fairly different in, in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, we both really try to capture moments. And, you know, you felt like you knew those guys and you saw those things that happened in that story. And that's, that's about the best thing you can do in an article like that is, is to have that sort of vivid thing. Uh, visual thing um so it's great to have him on the show and i like having journalists on because it's it's like it's, they, they kind of do my work for me like you know i can just <laughs> so what are you working on tell me what what's going on that's important and it's like tom sawyer help, getting help painting his fence you know gets all the yeah. other kids to paint his fence well it's funny because at certain points during that interview it felt like he was interviewing you too you're right i mean he just has that journalistic instinct where he just yeah. wants to ask questions we can't we can't turn it off it just sort of happens it's like a car with bad steering just kind of drift to one side um, you know, uh, today for the, uh, essential shelf, you know, we've had some of the same guys a, a couple times, you know, uh, and I, I always try to go for some diversity and I probably haven't done that enough with the, um, essential shelf as far as like the variety of stuff, but, uh, you know what, we're going to be doing this for a while. We got time. We'll, we'll get to everything, but, uh, I'm going to kind of take it at a gut level. Like, like if, uh, you know, you walked into my uh, office here and I and said, you know, I want to read a comic book. I've never read a comic book. What should I read? I say, oh, okay, hold on. And, and, you know, so I'm going with that instinct is what I would hand you. And the one today is uh, definitely on that list. If you, if you kind of want to see like how great a comic book can be written as far as like just the story that's propelled along, it's compelling with really interesting characters and um, tells a story that's got like things callbacks to cool Marvel history. Um, but at the same time is, is fresh ground. And, uh, and uh, it's this book born again, uh, which is a daredevil uh, story. It's a story arc. And uh, it was written by Frank Miller, who's been on this essential shelf quite a lot. Uh, and it was, the art was done by uh, Dave Machizelli, uh, who's a fantastic artist. And he, this is the same team. And uh, that, uh, well, we can go ahead and put two books on this because <laughs> same shelf because they he, they did the essential one of the essential Batman books at the same time, uh, not the same time, but around the the same era, and it was uh, Batman Year One, which okay. is how Bruce Wayne becomes Batman and, and forms that persona, and a lot of that would become the basis of key scenes in Batman Begins and in Dark Knight. Um, there was visuals that were taken directly from the story. There was uh, the textures of it, uh, some of the look of things, the the characters like Jim Gordon, a lot of it's from that. And then Born Again, the same team, Miller writing, not doing the art, Dave Machizelli doing the art. Um, and uh, he has like a real clean, uh, almost like a action film. It's like watching the French Connection, uh, these, you know, Everything is gunmetal gray and um, 
like drowning victim blue and like, everything's dark. Um, but it's also a very grounded world. Uh, and, you know, it when uh, Daredevil or Batman in these stories, you know, you feel that they are human and that they're very breakable and that uh, it, there's nothing, there's no bullets bouncing off anybody in these stories. You know, there, there's a lot of um, injury and, and it, they remind me kind of that movie Ronin, um, you know, the great it's, action uh, film. Yeah, Robert De Niro. Yeah, it, 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 it's a lot like that. It's like a grim world where grim men and grim women are making grim decisions about grim things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that has one of the every, most depressing endings ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and these stories don't have that. Oh, uh, good. The Batman Year One actually has a, a tr- tremendous flourish at the end, which is one of the best kind of dot, dot, dot endings you'll see. And it's one that you'll recognize because it was lifted directly by Christopher Nolan wisely um, when he and, and um, you know, and David S. Goyer and stuff, they, they had good taste when they looked at the Batman comics, they knew what to take. You know, that's one of the great things about Christopher Nolan is his taste. You know, he has great taste and quality. And then with Batman, I mean, excuse me, with Daredevil born again, the way that Captain America is pulled into the story as a, as a, a supporting character and they introduce a character uh, named Nuke who uh, f- uh, fans of the TV show Daredevil will remember, uh, you know, what that character is like. Uh, he's introduced in this story and one of them uh, with Captain America, the, the way that Frank Miller, you can feel his respect for the legacy of the character and the history and tradition of the character. Uh, he knows what makes Captain America special. And then with Nuke, he shows he knows how to introduce a fully formed character out of nowhere who dovetails with the the legacy and and propels it forward so i mean just i can't say enough about these two comics i think they're both you know uh 10 out of 10 stars i i I, they're my favorite kind of comic book because they're clever acknowledgments of the past legacy mythology and weave in new things that take it to a next step um next generation next iteration that feels fresh and new so i mean what's better than that yeah, nothing. I, I can't think of anything. That's very cool. You know, Daredevil is one of those characters who I've always wanted more of. So I would start with place. this one. Yeah, I think it's great. You'll see everything that's great about Daredevil. Uh, Miller, you know, had already done a lot of Miller. Uh, Miller had already done a lot of Daredevil comics by this point, and he had drawn them. You know, he, he drew them starting in the late uh, 150 issues, like 157, 158, uh, and all the way up through, you know, uh, Elektra getting killed which is like a big you know crescendo moment in uh daredevil 181 um and uh, and he would he would leave you know uh another 10 issues later uh as the artist but uh on this one he's not the artist and and you know his his art is would get increasingly abstract with things like sin city and 300 and uh more about deconstructing things kind of the way you know, like a Picasso would almost, um, or a Saul Bass, the designer who did all the great movie posters that are so expressive with shapes and color mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, composition. But with Machizelli, because his stuff is so grounded and, and the illustration is a different type and different level, and that's no disrespect to Frank, it's just they have different priorities and approaches. But Machizelli's, it's like, it's like cinematography. It looks like a, a William Freakin movie um playing out on the screen you know um as opposed to miller's thing which is sometimes could be 
um, like, you know, uh, abstract shadows, you know, playing across the, uh, a wall, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, cave drawings sometimes like the difference between cinematography and cave drawing, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the cave drawing is brilliant because it's like, like Picasso. It's in touch with the story and, and it's pulling in its representation. It's simple, but it's also elemental. It's not, it's not simple and, 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 um, uncomplicated it's simple and um, you know uh elemental like it, it goes to you know kind of things that's why 300 is like such a powerful book and, and that it was turned into a movie you know um frame for frame practically yeah and everybody remembers that movie that's one that not shockingly but is still around and people still remember exactly exactly and and the same with sin city you know i mean mm -hmm. miller's had uh, these two different films uh, franchises because they each had sequels or prequels um, and they're almost frame for frame representations of his artwork which in some places as I said is is very very uh, simple uh, composition wise or, or very elemental again uh, um, but he you know he does more with less uh, than anybody I know and uh, in these, you don't see that with the art, but you see it with the story and you see the economy of his story. There's not a wasted panel or a bit of dialogue in either of the two books. I mean, everything, it, it has a purpose and it propels it forward and it really shows that he'd become, uh, you know, just a, a master of the form, a master of the form. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to checking out the Daredevil story. I have read Batman Year One, and so I can vouch for your credibility here. It is a very good story, and we're, our listeners should definitely check that out. Um, but unless you have anything else, um, that's the end of the show. That sounds good to me, and happy Thanksgiving. Yep. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. All right. We'll see you next time. Yep. See you then. Yeah.